Joshua chapter 2. Now Joshua the son of Nun sent two men from Acacia Grove to spy secretly, saying, Go and view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came to the house of a harlot named Rahab and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you and who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the country. And the woman took the two men and hid them, and she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I do not know where they came from. And it happened as the gate was being shut when it was dark that the men went out, and when the men went out, I do not know, and pursue them quickly, you may overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. Then the men pursued them as by the road to the Jordan to the fords, and as soon as those who pursued them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now before they, laid, before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, that all of the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Ammonites, who were out on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you, for the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. So this is the beginning of the promised land conquest. Joshua sends spies. They stay. They go to Jericho, which is the first city they're going to uh, attack. And they stay with this prostitute named Rahab. And she says, everybody in town is terrified of you. We've heard of your God. We know what he did 40 years ago at the Red Sea. We know how you utterly destroyed the kings in the wilderness, Sihon and Og. She says, uh, this is verse 12 of Joshua chapter 2. Now, therefore, I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you also will show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token and spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have and deliver our lives from death. Skipping down a couple of verses, the men said to her, we will be blameless of this oath of yours, which you have made us swear. Unless when we come into the land, you bind this line of scarlet cord to the window through which you let us down. And unless you bring your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household into your own home. So it shall be that whoever goes outside the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we will be guiltless. And whoever is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. So the spies, they promise Rahab... We will not kill you or your family because you have hidden us and because you have helped us. At this point, they have no idea what is coming in just a few days. It's only four days later uh, that they're going to attack the city, but they don't know yet God's going to tell them to march around the city. They don't know about the walls falling down and all that. They don't know that's coming, but they've just promised you will not be hurt. So they give her a red rope to tie in her window to identify her house. And when they get back to Joshua, they're going to tell the commanders of the army, there's a window, going to be a window in the city wall with a red rope in it. Anybody in that house, don't kill them. That's the family that helped us. That's the woman that saved our lives when we were being hunted. Everybody with me? You know the story, I hope, I think. Maybe so Joshua and the people, they cross the river and they come up to Jericho. And God says, march around it six days. 
one time in complete silence. Don't say anything. Don't do anything. Don't attack. This is my battle. And then on the seventh day, you're going to march around the city seven times. And then you're going to beat the drums and blow the trumpets and shout. And, and the wall is going to fall down, the entire city wall. Rahab's house was in the city wall. So they do this, and you can read this in the next couple chapters of Joshua. They do this, and on the seventh day, they march around seven times. They blow their trumpets. They shout. They scream. They bang their swords on their shields, and, and the wall falls down, except for Rahab's house. Rahab's house is the only section of the wall that doesn't fall. It's still standing, and everyone in that house survives. Everyone else is crushed in the rubble, or as the army sweeps over the pile of rubble and goes in and kills everything. God says, kill everyone, kill everything, all the animals, no one survives. Uh, it, was, it was actually a first fruits tithe to the Lord um, of their conquest. But uh, here's what the spies tell him. This red scarlet rope is going to save you. What do you think that might represent? That's the blood of Jesus. There's there's actually a scarlet line through the entire Old Testament. The symbols of the blood of Jesus all through the Old Testament. They're marked with the blood of Jesus in her house the same way the Jews on the night of Passover were marked with the blood of the lamb and no one died in their home because they were marked with the blood. So they give her a scarlet rope and it represents the blood of Jesus and they say anyone in your house will survive. So let's, let's look at this again what they say. They swear we will not hurt you, but we will be blameless of this oath which you made us swear. Unless when we come into the land, you have the the scarlet cord tied on your window. And your father, your mother, your brothers, your father's household, everybody has to be in your home because we don't know your family. So they have to be in the home where the red rope is. All right? And, And if they're out on the street, their blood's on their own head, but... If any of our army kills anybody in your household that's in your home where the red line is, we will die for that. We give you our word. Their blood will be on our head. So, the picture is the blood of Jesus saving us from destruction in the same way the blood of the Lamb saved the Jews 40 years earlier on the night of Passover. There are so many different Bible stories that would illustrate this. But today, I just want to ask... I just want to point out, Rahab asks the spies, can my father and mother and my brothers and their kids be saved? Everybody knows you're going to come and wipe us out because your God is completely real and ours aren't. We know we're going to die. Can you save my father and my brothers and my mom and my nieces and nephews? And the spies say, get them in your house under the red rope, and nothing will happen to them. I just want to point out, Rahab's father and mother and her brothers and their kids did nothing. They did nothing. Rahab did it all. She is the one with faith. She's in Hebrews 11 as a hero of faith. She's the one with faith, but her family was saved because of her faith. When they, all they had to do was listen to her. That's all they had to do. Just stay here for the night, dad. That's it. If you love, if you love your family this morning and some of them are not saved, you're going to be really happy you're here this morning. (laughs) This word is for you. All right. I just want to point out that Rahab's father and mother and brothers and all her nieces and nephews did absolutely nothing. But Rahab's faith saved them. 
she saved them with her obedience and her faith. Her family had no faith. They didn't do anything, but they lived through it because of her. Let's look at another story that shows the same thing from the book of Acts. Peter, in Acts 10, has a dream of the unclean animals being let down out of heaven, and God, a voice from heaven says, kill and eat. And Peter says, no, I don't eat unclean things, God. And God tells him this three times, and he finally gets the point that God has, through the blood of Jesus, God has made everything clean, that everything is acceptable. And really, it's not about food and animals. It's about people. The Jews thought that us Gentiles were unclean, and we could never come into the kingdom of God, that that was only for Jewish people. And God has to show Peter that that is not the way it is. I have accepted the Gentiles too. And so he has this dream, and then the voice of God speaks to him from heaven, and he says, Peter, there are three men downstairs waiting to see you. Go with them and don't doubt anything that happens. And as soon as that says that, there's a knock on the door, and there's three men that said, hey, Peter, we're here for you, and this is how it goes. Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius, and he said, yes, I am he who you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius, the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. Then he invited them in and lodged them. On the next day, Peter went away from them, with them, and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. And the following day, they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. He had called together his relatives and close friends. He had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I myself am also just a man." As he walked in with him, he went in and found many who had come together. He found many who had come together. So Cornelius said, Four days ago I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. When he comes, he will speak to you. So I sent to you immediately, and you were good enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word you know, which has been proclaimed through all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead." And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. And to him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission from sins. So that's what Peter told these Gentiles who are not Jews nor Christians. That's his first sermon to them. This is what happens. 
While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. And Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that those should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. And they asked him to stay a few days. So they did. This was completely illegal in Judaism, according to the Pharisees, not according to the Old Testament, just according to the Pharisees and the way the Jewish Christians did things. This is about 10 years after Jesus had resurrected and ascended to heaven. The Jews have been living on their own and they have not been spreading the gospel like Jesus said to They've just sort of been preaching among themselves. So God, through the Holy Spirit, has to prove to Peter, no, this is for every nation, every people, every tribe, every language. And so he goes in and they get baptized with the Holy Spirit. And he says, hey, guys, we can't stop them from being baptized. This isn't just a Jewish thing. This is for everybody. And so they stay a few days and they go back to Jerusalem. And when they hear what had happened, a bunch of the Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem get angry at Peter. How dare you do that? They're untouchable. They're unclean. And Peter tells them about his dream and he tells them about the baptism of the Holy Spirit that happened. He's like, hey, it wasn't me. The Holy Spirit did it. It just came on them. I didn't lay hands on them. It just happened. And here's what Peter says in chapter 11. Then the Spirit told me to go with him, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house who had said to him, send me men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. You and all your household, you and all your household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I should withstand God? So there's the story. The story is what it is. My point this morning, I just want to point out again, like I did with Rahab, it's Cornelius who's fasting. It's Cornelius who's praying. It's Cornelius who sees the angel. It's his house that Peter is sent to, but he invited his close friends and his family. And then Peter goes, comes and he says, you're all going to be saved, whether you knew it or not. You're all about to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Cornelius's faith provided a home for people to come into and meet Jesus. They came not knowing anything. And his faith became a place, a space for them to to be saved. Just like Rahab's house was the space, the place, the home where her family gets saved. You, your faith. Your home, your life is a place where the people that you love can come to get saved. If you have people that you love, kids or grandkids, your parents, your siblings, co-workers or neighbors or friends that don't know Jesus, you're in the right place this morning. I'm here to tell you that you provide a place for them to come. And meet Jesus. And I mean your physical home, but really I mean the relationship that you have with them. And your faith can result in their salvation. I don't mean you can have faith for them, but your faith can lead them to salvation. Listen to this from Mark chapter 2. 
Jesus entered Capernaum about in some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately, many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door, and he preached the word to them. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down on the bed the paralyzed man. And when Jesus saw their faith, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. And they said, how does this man speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God? Immediately, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves. And he said, why do you reason these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He turned to the paralytic and said, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and walk. Go to your house. Immediately he arose, took up his bed, and went out in the presence of them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven. You know some people in your family or your circle of friends or your classmates or your students or somebody you know and love who is so broken and damaged by life, they're not going to get to Jesus on their own. you got to carry them to Jesus. And I, I want you to know this morning, you have legal spiritual authority to carry someone else in your faith and bring them to Jesus. Jesus saw their faith up on the roof. They've cut a hole in there. He says their faith, and he says to their friend, yes, let's do this. <laughs> let's do this. When he sees their faith, he heals their friend. Yeah. Um, we're not going to read it, but in Exodus 12, the morning after the Passover, when all the Israelites are packing up all their stuff and looting the Egyptians for everything they're worth, which the Bible says was their payment for 400 years of slavery, uh, when they're packing up all their livestock and stealing all their jewelry and, and just ready to pack out, it says twice in Exodus and again in Numbers, it says, and a large mixed multitude went up with them, with their livestock and their stuff. So that is actually not, it's not real clear what that means. But the people who know language and history and the scholars that study such things, are, there's a general consensus that what it is is it's a whole bunch of non-Israelite people that left with the Israelites. Because they have just seen God mop the floor with the Egyptian gods. Like these gods that we have lived in Egypt and we know that we've gone to this temple and that temple and we've paid this and we've given that and we've sacrificed our sons. To these worthless gods. And the Israelites have a God that comes and rocks the world. And a whole bunch of non-Israelite people went with the Israelites. They didn't know their God. They just see that he's real. And they see the Israelites' faith, particularly Moses and Aaron. They see their faith. And we're going with you. They're not covenant people, but they get to go along. Hello. Now, I'm imagining this. I submit to you this is not in the Bible, but... But I, I wonder, how did they live through the night before when, when all the oldest sons died? 
I'm imagining it. I realize that. I can't say this is Bible, but I'm telling you, they went and knocked on the Israelite neighbor's door and said, we heard some bad stuff's coming tonight. Can we come in your house and get under the blood of the lamb? I'm just, I'm totally convinced that that happened. I don't know what scale it happened on, but they were, they knew they'd lived through nine plagues and they knew it was terrible. And when they heard it was the, what the Jews were doing with putting the blood of the lamb on their door and, and the Jews are talking about every, all the oldest people are going to die tonight and like, okay, we've seen him mop the floor with these guys before. I'm not staying outside here. There's some bad stuff coming. So they went in their house under the line of the blood, and they lived. The Israelites' faith and their covenant with God saved their neighbors' lives who didn't believe, but they believed <laughs> enough to be afraid. Hello? Come on. It's true. It's true. In the story of Naomi and Ruth, in the book of Ruth, I hope you know it, but here, here's the real brief version. There's an Israelite woman named Naomi, her husband, and she have two sons. There's a famine in Israel. They have no food, so they have to leave and go to the land of Moab. Moab is another tribe that lives over in what is today would be Syria or Saudi Arabia. They go there, and their sons end up marrying Moabite girls. God, in the Old Testament law, to Moses, the Moabites were born in incest. Uh, two daughters slept with their dad, and they both got pregnant with sons, and there's Ammon and Moab, and they grow up to be these great nations, and they're cursed because they're born in hideous sin. And God says, and they treat the Israelites terrible, and God says, never have mercy on the Moabites, and never marry a Moabite girl. She will lead you astray. But both of Naomi's sons do that. In the course of the story, Naomi's husband dies, both of her sons die. Uh, we're not told how, just in the course of time. Both of her then, it's just her and her daughters-in-law. One of the daughter-in-laws wants to go back to her parents and find a new husband and remarry. But Ruth says to Naomi, I love you. I want to go where you go. So your God's going to be my God. Your people are going to be my people. Your home will be my home. I, stay, I choose to stay with you. She doesn't know Yahweh God. She's not an Israelite. She's not a part of the covenant. But she says, I know you, and I love you, so I'm coming into your faith. So they move back to the land of Israel. If you know the rest of the story, she ends up marrying an Israelite man named Boaz. She's the great-grandma of King David, and she is the great-great-great-great-something of Jesus. She's not even supposed to be allowed to live under the Old Testament law, and God redeems her life. And makes her an ancestor of David and Jesus. And it's one of the great love stories of the Old Testament. The other one being the Song of Solomon. And she is a picture of the church. Boaz is Jesus. And she is a picture of the church. But it all started with, I don't know anything, but I know you. I see that your faith and your integrity and your righteousness are real, mother-in-law. So you tell me whatever you need to tell me and I'll do it. Naomi's faith saved Ruth. Hello? Yeah? There's another guy who's really famous for having obeyed God, and his righteousness saves a lot of people. You heard of him before? Anybody? First service, it took a while. Scratching the head. It's Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we're just now getting this. Uh-huh. Yeah, Jesus 
has a relationship with his father. And how do we get saved? By coming into a relationship with Jesus. And then we call ourselves Christians, which means little Christs. Which means that in our relationship with Christ, people ought to be able to come into a relationship with us and find Jesus. In the same way that we come into Christ and find God. Hello, come on. Yeah, Jesus. It's our relationship with him that saves us. And there is a way where our faith leads people who know us into salvation. 1 Corinthians 7 says this specifically about your spouse and your kids. A woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Sanctified means washed clean, made holy. If you are married to somebody who's not a believer, the Bible says if that other person wants to leave, let them leave in peace. But if they want to stay married to you, stay married because you are making your spouse holy. And you are making your children holy. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. Why are they holy? Because they're in relationship with you. The spouse specifically does not believe. But you are one with Jesus, and he or she is one with you, so they're connected to Jesus, whether they mean it or not. Some of you are still really worried about this. I think I've gone off into the deep waters of heresy. Check out what God tells Noah in Genesis 7. Then the Lord said to Noah, come into the ark, you and all your household. You and all your household. Because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Other places in that passage, God says Noah is the only righteous man. And we know later on in the story, his sons are not great people. They're really not all that great. But they're saved anyway. Because dad built a boat. And they worked with dad and they did what dad said. They understood that dad knows something I don't know. I, dad has something I need. Right? Da- Noah did not save them, God did. But Noah's obedience, his faith, provided the vehicle for their salvation. Luke 13. Jesus says, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and put in his garden, and it grew and became a large tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. A couple of years ago, God rocked my world and my paradigm of what ministry is with this passage, because I feel used so often. Uh, People will come into our church in trauma and drama, and uh, you, you all love them, and you give them stuff, and we pray for them, and deliver them of their demons, and we love them, and we give them a church family, and... And then when it's not so trauma and drama, a lot of times they just leave. And sometimes with a thank you, but a lot of times they don't even say thank you. They just quit coming. They disappear when they don't feel that urgent need in their life of, oh, I'm going through this major disaster. All of a sudden God isn't a need anymore and a felt need. And, uh, and I feel taken advantage of. I feel stolen from. I feel used. And it created some feelings in me and God gave me this verse and he said I planted you here and your job is to stay planted and grow and bear fruit and the birds of the air can fly in and peck you clean I am using your life to feed them and take care of them where they're at for whatever they need and they can fly on to another tree if they want 
Mitch, you are not growing fruit to can it for later. You're not sticking it in the freezer. It is for the birds of the air to eat today when it's ripe. And then, they, you know what? They're going to come in and pick you clean. They're going to eat you up and poop on you and leave. And that is what I put you there for. And the next season, you will grow more fruit and feed more people. And you may be used, and, but you're keeping people alive and that is why I planted you there, because I wanted food for them. And it totally rocked my world. Like, okay, that's, that's what ministry is, is just stay planted and produce fruit, and people come and eat it. And that, that's it. And so I'm saying you, too. This is all of you. Individually and in your marriages and in your families, you are to be planted before the Lord and bear fruit, and you provide a place for homeless people to come in and find shelter and food. Your unsaved family, your friends, your neighbors, they come in, and maybe it's your physical home, but just they're in relationship with you, and they're I feel so much peace when we talk. You have so much wisdom. Thank you for helping me through this situation. Thank you for taking care of me. Thank you for being a shoulder to cry on and ear to listen. That's you being the mustard tree. And somebody just comes and finds a home, finds a place to land for an hour or a year or a lifetime. Your faith which is your mustard seed, grows and provides shelter, provides a home for somebody else to come and be taken care of. And they find God's love in what you do and what you give. It's beautiful, isn't it? It is. Your faith provides a shelter for God to take care of other people. I'm thinking of the story of Elijah and the widow lady and her son that Herman mentioned last week. There's a widow lady out gathering, gathering sticks, and Elijah said, Prophet Elijah comes to her, and he says, can you get me a drink? And she draws water from the well and gets him a drink. He says, can you go home and make me a loaf of bread? I haven't had anything to eat. And she says, by the Lord your God, I swear I'm telling you the truth. I'm gathering these sticks to go home and cook the last loaf of bread I've got, and my son and I are going to starve to death because I have absolutely nothing else. And Elijah says... If you feed me, the Lord will provide for you. So she does in faith. She responds. She gives Elijah the last loaf of bread, and then her flower pot and her oil bottle never ran out for the rest of the famine. It was just miraculously full all the time, as long as Elijah lived with her, and she fed him. So the story is what it is. The miracle is what it is. I just want to point this out. When they first start talking, he says, Can you make me some bread? And she says, As the Lord your God lives. She believes in God, but he isn't my God because he isn't taking care of me. I don't see him. I'm about to starve to death. I know you serve him, but I don't have any hope. I don't have any faith. I don't have any power. I'm going to go home and die. But Elijah's faith saves her life. She has to obey and respond, but his faith is what produces the miracle. Of course, she has to act in faith and respond. So one of our Bethel teams that was here years ago was telling a story of a Bethel team on the street of San Francisco going around looking to ambush people to pray for healing. And there's a circle of Bethel students gathered around a person with an obvious physical disability of some sort. And they're praying for this. I think it was a man. They're praying for this man. And uh, a drunk guy comes down the sidewalk Stumbling, loud, shouting, 
just blabbering drunk. And he pushes his way into their circle. And he says, what are you doing? And it, well, we're praying for this man to get healed. Well, can I pray with you? Sure, you can stand here and pray with us. And uh, so he stood there and listened to him pray for a little bit. And I don't know how long this went on, but and then he's like, well, I want to pray. Okay, sure, you can pray. So they've all got their hands on this man they're trying to see healed. And the drunk guy puts his hand on the guy and he says, now who are we praying to? He says, we're praying to Jesus. All right. And he's heard these people pray for a moment. He says, all right, in Jesus' name, I pray that you be healed. He was instantly healed. And it was some physical thing that was obvious, and it happened when the drunk guy who didn't even know who he was praying to prayed because he came into their faith. When we, in a, when we were homeschooling our kids years ago, Sarah read a missionary book as part of the curriculum every year. And one of the stories that I remember out of that, I don't remember all the details, but it was, I think it was Wycliffe Bible translators maybe or something. They had gone to an unreached tribe where there was no Christians, there's no scripture, they don't have the Bible in their language. And, and it's just, as I recall, it's just like a couple of ladies, an island in the Philippines. Nobody in this tribe was a believer. They'd never heard of Jesus. They don't have the scriptures. And they worship some seriously demonic spirits. So they they're just live in terror of placating these wicked spirits that keep them all in bondage. And, and they wear a talisman. It, it's their connection to their God and what they worship. And it's the spiritual connection even to their body. And there's this one woman who's been to hell and back in her life. And she's an outcast and abused by the, her own people. And I forget all the details. But she, she decides to listen to the missionary woman. That she doesn't have a Bible. She doesn't know anything other than this woman's kind to me. So she says, I'm going to stop worshiping my God and I'm going to start worshiping your God because I like you. And that's all it was. That's evangelism. <laughs> she was loved by this woman, taken care of in a way that her own people were not. And the, woman, the missionary woman says, okay, you have to take this talisman off. You, you can't have that spiritual connection. You can't worship that God anymore. So she removes her necklace or whatever it is that is the spiritually cursed thing and all hell breaks loose, spiritually and socially. I mean, you're, you're rejecting your people and your family and your tribal religion and you're following these, what these white women are telling you and, and, uh, you know, and then demonically just crazy stuff breaks out and they're days into this and she's being beat up and they're praying together and at one point, the part that sticks out in my head is that she's... They're praying, and she's praying with this, the missionary lady, and she says, now what's the name of, of our God again? She says, my God is Jesus. That, that's how little she knew. But it was real faith, and it was a desire and a hope to be set free. But all it was was a relationship with the woman that was taking care of her. The missionary lady's faith provided salvation for this other woman. Some negative examples, these are really bad examples, but it proves the same principle that I'm talking about is like uh, in, after the Israelites take Jericho, God says you may not have anything, you may not touch anything, all the gold is mine, the loot is mine, and Achan hides a little bit of it under his tent. So he has to be put to death, but who is put to death? Him and his whole family. Him and his whole household. Dathan and Abiram rebel against Moses in the wilderness and the earth opens up and swallows them, but not just them, them and their whole household. Their wives and kids die for their sin. Fathers, you have a lot of authority for good and bad. And, and right after the flood, Ham sins against his father Noah, but it's his son Canaan that ends up cursed. 
because of his dad's sin. Lot has four daughters, two of which escape with him before the fire falls down on the city, but two of them were married to uh, men of Sodom, and they stayed with their husbands, and because they stayed with their husbands, they died in the fire. A family has a lot of authority for good and bad. Let me be very clear about what I am not talking about. Your grandma cannot save you. Your pastor cannot save you. You cannot rely on my faith or grandma's prayers when you need something from Jesus. You have to go to him yourself. There's no way I can save you from hell. There is no way that I can heal you. If you need something from God, you have to go yourself. Your grandma and your pastor and your righteous wife, we can pray for you, but we are in the same boat before Jesus as you. We are all bound for hell except for Jesus, all right? And so I am not talking about forcing your grandkids to get saved or go to church. I'm not talking about manipulating people, and I'm not talking about worrying them into salvation, okay? You're not in charge of their lives or who gets saved when or who does what when or rescuing them from all their terrible decisions. But what I am saying is what Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Because those of you who are grandparents with grandkids that are out being hellions or your parent, you've come to Jesus, but your parents don't know him and you want desperately for your family to know Jesus. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. There are some people in your life where your life is the only Bible they're ever going to read, at least at first, all right? Your faith can provide a place for them to come and meet Jesus, just like Cornelius' house was the place where all his friends and family met Jesus and got filled with the Holy Spirit. Rahab's house is where her family got saved from death. Noah's Ark is the place where his kids and grandkids survived. So you can't worry your grandkids into salvation. You can't force your brother to listen to your gospel and argue with him. You can't nag your parents into coming to church with you and believing what you believe. But you just being you, they're going to start noticing some things. Hello? Your classmates, your coworkers, your students, your family, your friends, they're going to be noticing some things that your faith is an example to the people around you and they're watching whether you like it or not you are being judged and that's the way, what's what God wants you are being judged your your family and your friends that don't know Jesus they're watching you is that thing really real or is he a hypocrite yeah. right is she really consistent with this God thing or is it just a fad that's going to last a couple of years in her life and go away and some of your friends and family may need to watch for 20 or 30 years to see how it turns out for you seriously Either they're so selfish they want to continue on living their life even though they know your faith is real. I'm just, I don't want to obey. Or they really, truly may be interested, but they just don't know what to believe. What is true? I don't know. I'm going to watch grandma. I'm going to watch my sister. Or you got nieces and nephews or great nieces and nephews that they know your story. They know your testimony and, and that's all they know, but like, I know Aunt Tony is righteous. I know Aunt Tony's got something. Yeah, I know Grandma Donna has something. Yeah, your faith will provide a place for them to come and be saved. 
Your prayers are being heard. Your fasting is being seen. That's what the angel came and said to Cornelius. Your fa- God knows of your fasting. He's heard your prayers. Don't stop. Grandmas, grandpas, moms, dads, sons and daughters, don't stop. When the people around you see your joy and your love and your faith, that are, they're real and they're contagious. When they have some sort of desperate need, they will come to your house. Hello? When their enemies encircle their city and they're about to die, they will come to your house. And your house has the blood of the lamb on it. And Jesus will meet them there. You may have to wait 40 years. And you may have to watch them live through hell and cry a lot of tears. But when they are in desperate need, they know which house to go to. I got to go talk to grandma. And you may even feel in some moments like that, you may even feel used. Like you only come to me when you're in trouble. You need to get right with Jesus and live your life every day. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I hear you, Grandma. Uh-huh. Just, just fix me now. You may, that may even be happening. But praise God, they're there asking. Don't push them away. Give them Jesus for whatever they're asking for. You know, so many people in the Gospels came to Jesus for one thing that they needed, and some of them thanked him, and some of them didn't, and they ran off, and they're never heard from again. But he loved them anyway. You had a quote in your bulletin a week or two ago from John G. Lake. said, Jesus did not heal people to get them to become Christians. He healed them because that's his nature. He just loved them where they're at and he met the need they were asking for. And he was available all the time and they can come or they can not. But when they came, he never pushed them away. Your real faith, your public faith, your hospitality, your open home and your open hands. People see it. They're watching. You are being judged. And that's, good, that's the way it's supposed to be. You may not like it, but you are on public display. The Bible says you are a spectacle in front of men and spirits. Everybody's watching your life. That should make you feel paranoid. It should change what you watch. It should change where you go on the internet. It should change what you say. You are being watched and listened to 24-7. And a tinfoil hat ain't going to help. Holy Spirit can see right through that, right? You have some friends and family that they see that your faith is real and they know God is real, but they just don't want to give it up. Like, I don't want to obey God. I want to live what I want to live. But they're, they're, they know where to come when trouble comes, right? Others of your friends and family, they aren't necessarily rebellious. They're just skeptical. They're like, I know Grandma believes, but I don't know what I believe. But they're watching Grandma they're listening, but they'll know that it's real eventually because you will continue to be the tree that provides the fruit. You will continue to be the shelter where people around you who know you, they're watching and they're like, ah, no, that's not a fad in her life. That's not hypocrisy. That's real. She really believes it. I wonder if God can help me. Hey, this is what we want. Be happy that they know where to come when they need Jesus. That they come to you. Can you please give me advice? Can you please pray for me? Can you please help me through this? Just be happy. Just be gracious. Give them Jesus. And that happens enough times, you don't know what's going on in their heart, but they're watching you and they're coming and they see that your prayers work. They see that your love is real, that your advice is wise. They're like, maybe there is something to that whole Jesus thing. And you don't know what's coming. You don't know what's coming. Just be in place. 
Provide a home. And I mean, yes, your physical home, but I just mean relationship. Provide a place. Absolutely, it has to include your dining room table and your living room couch. But, but it's in relationship. Provide a place for people to know you and find Jesus. Hey, your real faith, your public faith, your hospitality, your open home and your open hands, there will be some people around you that will be watching and they will want what you have. Your faith will inspire them. So keep praying for your family members, your coworkers, your classmates, your students. Pray for your, the people around you. You have relational authority from God to intercede for them, mostly with family, but anybody that you know and pray for in real love, love is the authority that you have to pray for them. And when the world starts to fall down, they will run to your house. Come on, I'm talking about Rahab and her family. When the world starts to collapse, they will run to your house. And they will get behind the bloodline and they will say, help me. And you can introduce them to Jesus. Amen. And he will spare their lives. Amen. Lord, we lift our loved ones to you, our children, our grandchildren, our parents, our siblings, uh, in-laws, Lord, our coworkers, students, friends. Lord, those that we know that we love, that we want to take care of, those that are hopelessly lost or those out there trying to be good or those out there being full-on hellions. Lord, we lift them all to you in Jesus' name when we ask for mercy. We ask for grace. We ask for your forgiveness. For the people that we love, Lord, bring them into your kingdom. Call their name. Bring them to you. Set them free that they would no longer be slaves of fear or addiction, anger, all that ugly stuff, Lord. Bring them to you. And we say this morning, Lord, use us. We consent, Lord, to be the tree, to bear the fruit that others eat. We consent to be the candle, to be the lamp on a stand. Get the basket off of our lamp, Lord, and make us shine bright. Forgive us when we've hidden our light. Forgive us when we've been hypocrites in front of the people we claim to know you, but then we laugh at their jokes. We're saying things and watching movies we shouldn't be watching. Lord, your word says you have made us a spectacle before men and spirits. We're always being watched, and you expect us to shine. Not in pressure to be perfect, but to be loud and proud of our faith. Lord, make us a home where others can come and be safe from the chaos and the darkness and the destruction of the world. Make us agents of salvation to lead our loved ones to you. Forgive us for doubt praying, Lord. We pray in faith. We thank you that you've heard every prayer. You've seen every tear. You've collected every tear. That every grandma has prayed. That every parent has prayed. You've collected them all. And you will move at just the right time and you will bring them into your house. Put them under your blood. And as the world falls down, we will stand. We bless you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.